Do you believe, Thomas, because you have seen me? How blessed, how enviable are those who have not seen and yet believe. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. I imagine that St. Peter must have been meditating on these words that our Lord spoke that night when he wrote several decades later to the faithful gathered throughout modern-day Turkey, then Asia Minor. He writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you trust in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I confess that I've sometimes thought that St. Peter or Jesus were saying such things just to make us feel better about not being lucky enough to being one of those chosen few in the generation where Jesus lived his life and did his ministry. Kind of like when you show up late to a birthday party, you miss out on all the cake, and somebody tries to console you, saying something stupid like, well, at least you don't have to deal with all the calories and the blood sugar spike. Wow, thanks, you're right. It's totally natural to wish we could have been there in the midst of all that excitement surrounding the life, ministry, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We think to ourselves, if only I could have stood in their place on that night in the upper room and seen those scars of love with my own eyes. If only I had been present for all those miracles, then my faith would be as steadfast as theirs, and my love as fervent as theirs was, my hope as unyielding as theirs, my joy truly inexpressible like theirs. Part of us inwardly wants to say to the apostles, how blessed, how enviable are the eyes that see what you saw, right? But maybe, just maybe, Jesus and St. Peter have a point. Maybe there are advantages to our situation. When our Lord addresses his disciples on the night before his passion, he says to them, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that is, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When Christ withdraws from our sight, it is always that he might draw closer to us. This is his first hint to us that maybe it is to our advantage that we don't see him just yet, that we don't always experience a felt sense of his presence in this life, that we don't always experience things going to plan. Maybe there's a good reason even that we use so many veils in our liturgy and that we use incense to put up a big cloud of smoke and veil our sight from the holy things going on at the altar. Why? How could this be? First of all, because there are great dangers of relying on our material vision when we draw near to God. Second, because of the value of our faith in God. And finally, because of the destiny that God is preparing us for. Throughout the records of Scripture, we see Israel's over-dependence on what they could see with their eyes repeatedly getting them into trouble. 
It got them into trouble because they refused to look past the things, the types and shadows that they saw, to the realities, the archetypes to which these things pointed, which is ultimately why most of them stumbled and rejected even Christ when he visited them in the flesh. We see God's chosen people becoming attached to the bread that perishes rather than seeking the bread that endures to eternal life, to an earthly and visible and corruptible kingdom rather than the eternal kingdom of God, to their earthly and temporal inheritance in the land of Canaan rather than the imperishable inheritance that God promised to his servant Abraham and then reminded them of through the prophets, to the physical temple rather than to the body of Christ, to the surface-level interpretation of God's commandments, even to physical circumcision, rather than the true circumcision of the heart, which is what is truly pleasing to God, which is found in repentance, humility, sincere obedience, and love through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All of these were good things that God gave to his people, but they became dangerous when they distracted them from better things, even from God himself. If we think we already see, we won't keep looking. If we think we already understand, we won't keep seeking. And if we think we're already in the right, we won't repent. And so we cannot be healed or set right by God. For this reason, there is no sin more dangerous than pride and presumption, and no sin that Christ more violently opposes in those who would serve him. As Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. John 9, 39. And here's our second point. If pride and presumption are so hateful to God more than anything, so that he'll do almost anything to rid us of it, what then is most precious to God that he'll do almost anything to refine and develop in us? It's our faith, our faithfulness, our allegiance and loyalty. Hear what St. Uh, Peter writes in our passage for this morning. Now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God allows us to experience fiery trials in our lives, even veiling himself for a time from our sight to refine and increase our faithfulness, our trust in him, our loyalty. Just like gold, our faith, too, must be tested and purified in the fiery forge. But whereas even the most precious gold or precious metal eventually rots and corrupts and perishes, our faith will result in eternal praise, honor, and glory when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. In God's eyes, that's worth enduring some trouble for. In the 16th century, the Spanish Saint Ignatius of Loyola explained in his classic Rules for the Discernment of Spirits that God has three primary reasons 
for withdrawing the felt sense of his presence from us or permitting us to experience what he calls spiritual desolations at various times in our lives, even as Christians, all of which are ultimately in order to develop and refine that faith in God which is precious to him and our faithfulness in his service. Ignatius's first reason is that it can be due to our own faults. When we have slid into laziness or negligence in our spiritual lives or even into unrepentant sin, God might allow darkness or coldness of heart so that we can be drawn to him in repentance, confessing our sins, just like God does with the prodigal son in the parable. Second, it can happen because our motives for serving God need to be purified. At first in our spiritual lives, we tend to serve God or do good to others just because of the sweetness or reward that we get from it or just to evade punishment or criticism. This is sometimes called in the tradition mercenary or servile love. You're just there, in other words, because you're getting paid. God might withdraw this sense of tangible reward from us so that we gradually begin to love and serve him for his own sake and not just because of the gifts. This is what St. Ignatius calls the love of patriots. When the fighting gets rough and the pay runs dry, what will the mercenary do? They cut and run, but the patriots stand and fight. And third, it can be uh, to show us what we're really like without divine grace keeping us afloat. Ignatius says this is God keeping us from building our nest in what is not our own. That is to say, trials keep us humble. They make us realize our total dependence on God and that everything good comes from Him and not from within ourselves. This humbling keeps us from looking down on other people and keeps us looking up toward God. When we are watchful over our inner state and understand why God in his wisdom and loving providence veils himself from our sight, then we can act decisively to cooperate with his intentions and thwart the plans of our spiritual foe. And our faith, as a result, will grow beautifully and rapidly. But here's the third point. Our faith is so precious to God because of the destiny that he is preparing for us. As St. Peter writes, according to his great mercy, the Father has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. When we were baptized into Christ's death and resurrection, we were not only reconciled to God, we were not only cleansed from our sins through his blood, we were also adopted as sons of God, as children of God, and therefore as heirs, not of some temporal corruptible inheritance like the land of Canaan, which was quickly lost, but rather of his eternal heavenly kingdom. That term, sons of God or saints, holy ones, was not new to the New Testament, by the way. In the Old Testament, we actually see it used as a title for the angels that formed the royal court of God's heavenly kingdom, the divine council, 
who assist God in his governance of the cosmos. We see it in the book of Job, where God's divine counsel meets together and decides what we should do with Job. We see it in other parts of the Old Testament as well, in Deuteronomy. Part of the good news of the New Testament is that now, through the resurrection and glorification of our human nature in Jesus Christ and by his ascension to the right hand of the Father and his throne, that royal court now includes glorified human beings, the saints. This is part of what Christ is talking about when he says that in the age to come they'll neither be married nor given in marriage, but will be like the angels, equal to them. And later when he tells his apostles that they'll seat, be seated on twelve thrones judging the tribes of Israel. And why in Christ's parable when he tells the servant who had made ten men as more that he would rule over ten cities. Or why in Revelation the martyrs are given crowns. They're all images of divine royal authority that he so generously shares with us. This was God's original purpose for Adam in the garden and his descendants and the reason why Satan became envious and fell, dragging Adam down with him in his rebellion. God is preparing us for, to be heirs of his eternal kingdom. We've all heard stories of the children of the rich and famous, the stereotypes of trust fund babies, those whose souls have tragically been shipwrecked by the wealth of their parents by an inheritance that they were not prepared for. If I had a sizable inheritance to give my baby son, Cademan, a large sum of cash and property and businesses, which I don't, <laughs> none of that, but how would I know that he was ready to receive it, that it would do him more good than harm? Well, I'd have to put him to the test. I don't mean, of course, that I'd be aiming to trip him up, but rather to refine and mature him until I'm satisfied that he could manage everything in a way that would be beneficial both to himself and others, and which is in line with my own highest values. Because you know, at this stage of life, you'd be thinking, well, all that money could get me a whole lot of cheese crunchies. Developmentally appropriate, not healthy. I'd have to give him comparatively little things that he could be responsible over until he proves trustworthy and capable with them. I'd make sure that he had sufficient virtue to handle them well, even when he was in emotionally rough states or when he had the opportunity to misuse them to his advantage or even when he thought that I'd never know what he did with it. Now, if our Heavenly Father is going to invite us into the counsel of his closest friends and advisors, if he's going to entrust us as royal heirs to his kingdom with the role of genuine responsibility, judging even angels, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, then of course he's going to put our faithfulness to the trial. He's going to refine that faith and purge out all of the garbage until we're so aligned with our Heavenly Father's mission and values, so developed in the practice of Christian virtues, so obedient to Christ's commandments, so responsive to the Holy Spirit, so mature and steadfast that we can receive this inheritance as a blessing and not to our destruction. When God withdraws himself from our sight, 
when he removes from us that interior sense of his sweetness and presence, which we've all experienced, or allows us to undergo fiery trials. It's hard not to think that we've been forsaken, as though somehow he doesn't care for us or doesn't favor us as much as he does others. But that couldn't be farther from the reality. This means that he loves us. More than that, that he respects us, that he believes in who we could become, that he's inviting us to press in to know him more deeply and more intimately than we ever have before, and to inherit the kingdom prepared for us from before the world began. I want to end with a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a famous Soviet dissident who spent a grueling 10 years in the Soviet gulags and prison camps before finally escaping or being released and writing. He writes, It was granted to me to carry away from my prison years on my bent back, which nearly broke beneath its load, this essential experience, how a human being becomes evil and how good. In the intoxication of youthful successes, I had felt myself to be infallible, and I was therefore cruel. In the surfeit of power, I was a murderer and an oppressor. In my most evil moments, I was convinced that I was doing good, and I was well supplied with systematic arguments. It was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. That is why I turn back to the years of my imprisonment and say, sometimes to the astonishment of those about me, bless you, prison. I've served enough time there. I nourished my soul there. And I say without hesitation, bless you, prison, for having been in my life. In the darkness of the Soviet prison camps, Alexander learned to see. Even in the gulags, he recovered his faith in Christ that he had lost as a young man. And now I could say with St. Thomas, my Lord and my God. How blessed indeed, how enviable are those who have not seen and yet believed. And the Lord give us all courage and strength to say, Bless you, Lord, even for the veils that hide you from my sight. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.